Welcome to another episode of Bereans Podcast. Each week we share a message from the Bible and examine it to understand and learn to apply it to our lives. The hope is that through the wisdom of the scriptures, we will all be encouraged to make real life change and that the power of the gospel will transform our lives. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode of the Berean Podcast that starts right now. Good morning, Living Church. My name is Roger. I'm the perpetual pastor at Berean. And it's always a privilege to open the Word of God with you. A week ago yesterday, another couple went with Joanne and myself a little bit north of St. Cloud. We went to St. John's University. And uh, there we went into the library. We walked down a flight of steps into what is called the Museum of the Bible. And there we walked in to some doors into a hermetically sealed, temperature-controlled, humidity-controlled room. And there we began to see the pages of what is called the Illuminated Bible. It was a major project, and we saw there, right as we entered, the first page that they ever uh, transcribed, and it's the first page of the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. And you can see the artwork on that page. It's a beautiful page, and it gives this, the prophetic streams that are all coming down to the birth of Jesus. If you looked really closely, you would see a, a DNA helix that's been put into the artwork there. The calligraphy is beautiful. It's really spectacular. This was the vision of a man named Donald Jackson, who, even when he was a teenager, had a vision of reproducing the world's first hand-copied Bible in 500 years. And it took 14 scribes, and uh, artists, uh, 16 years to complete this. Now, it put that in perspective, it took Michelangelo only four years to paint the Sistine Chapel. And the Pope thought it took him forever. 16 years to produce this Bible. And one of the biggest tasks was to find six calligraphers who could all write in exactly the same hand. An incredible feat. And as they put this together, there's 160 major illustrations, not to mention all the beautiful calligraphy. And they used some expensive materials. They, knew, they used gold leaf and silver leaf and platinum leaf. And they wrote it all with quills made from turkey feathers. And it's, it's put on two foot by three foot pieces of calf vellum, the, the skins of calves. And uh, the ink black was taken from the soot of candles. I haven't figured out how they could do that. And it cost millions of dollars to produce this Bible. Look at the beauty of the Lord's Prayer, the calligraphy of the Lord's Prayer. 
the, the whole thing is just a masterpiece of beauty. It just in, invites you into the care and the, the, the artistry that's been put into this, the theological background, the discussions that had to take place to produce this Bible. So how does a small university in Lake Wobegon, Minnesota, bring beauty to the world? Well, they decided to do it through producing the Word, bringing the Word. And it has spread all around the world. There are very expensive copies of this in universities and seminaries and museums all around the world. The Word meticulously and beautifully and infectiously put into a world of chaos warfare, ugliness, and oppression with much care and skill and vision. Well, with much greater care and with millennia of planning, God himself decided, how am I going to influence this world? How am I going to impact this fallen world? And he sent the word. Here's the rendition of that illuminated Bible of John 1.14. The word became flesh. And dwelt among us. With God's infinite care and planning, He brought the Word into our world. And that's where we are today. The gospel, as Pastor Devin said two weeks ago, is an announcement. It's the good news. It is the announcement of a king who's coming. And today we come to his debut. So if you're able to stand with me as we read the scripture, will you stand in honor of God's Word as we read Mark chapter 1? Just three verses, verses 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of God for us today. Thank you. You may be seated. John the Baptist, in all of his eccentricity, was able to revive an ancient, embedded hope in the people of Israel. It was called the the hope of Israel, that that one day the, the kingdom of God would again be effect in our land, that the Messiah would come, that the Christ, the Messiah, the King, would come and deliver us in his kingdom. Well, as you know, hope is a very dangerous thing because you're never more vulnerable than when you really hope for something. And if you are hoping that the Twins are going to be defeat Houston this afternoon or that the Vikings are going to win, you are hanging over the precipice on a very thin rope. If you've ever hoped that you would win the scholarship or you ever hoped you'd be invited to prom or or you've ever hoped that this appointment with the doctor would be the final one and it would be painless, he would find a solution. Or if you've hoped that that your baby would be born healthy and strong or if you kneeled down to propose and you hoped that she would say yes. In every one of those moments, you are extremely vulnerable to disappointment because hope is like burning your ship on the shore and walking inland to a future that you can't guarantee. But we can't live without hope. But we tend to bank our hope. We hedge our hope. We guard our anticipation. We we release it in just little dribs and drabs because we've so often been disappointed. But every once in a while... 
We throw those fears and those cautions to the wind because someone or something or the information we have or the the momentum we've perceived is so great that we have this audacity to hope again. And that's what's happening at the River Jordan when John the Baptist begins baptizing. Because John the Baptist reminded the knowledgeable, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the the faithful of Israel, he reminded them of their history. He reminded them of the words of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, 400 years before. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. These are the last words in the Old Testament, the last words of the Hebrew Bible, that the day of the Lord, the Messiah, springing out of the root of Jesse, would come one day. And this rekindled their hope. And they first thought, well, is John the Baptist the Messiah? But they came hearing him announcing, no, I'm not the Messiah. Someone else is coming after me. Many had been disappointed for many years. They had all these these chain links of prophecy had come along. And yet the Egyptians and then the Syrians and then the Greeks and then the Romans had marched through the Holy Land and taken them captive. captive. And then they'd been disappointed by by the Maccabees and other so-called messiahs that had come and failed. But here they are, John the announcer, the forerunner, God uses to stir up this dangerous thing called hope. And this is recorded in all four Gospels, and Luke's rendition says this in Luke 3, 16. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. But they forgot And they were learning again, and we tend to forget when we think about the second coming of Jesus, that when the king comes, when the Lord comes, when the Christ appears, it's not just going to be all puppies and unicorns. It's going to be a time of examination. It's going to be a time when we recognize the impurities of our own hearts. So listen to Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will, bring, he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. He says when the promised one comes, he's not just going to bring a political victory or or a military standoff. He's going to be examining the hearts of the people. And it's going to be like the refiner's fire, like a smelter's heat that will melt everything in the furnace and we will draw off the slag until only the pure remains. Or it will be like a a fuller's soap. And this soap is not oil of Olay. It's not Aveeno. It's not CeraVe. I had to check the closet for some of those. (laughs) This is the kind of soap that's more like lye or bleach. It was used to, to make dark and spotted wool 
pure white. So when the, the Lord comes, when the Holy One arrives, he's going to examine us. And it is, isn't it interesting that even the Pharisees, the elders, the leaders of Israel, whom we often see as the enemies of Jesus later on in the Gospels, but even they knew their Bible, they knew the Old Testament, and they're coming to John for a baptism of repentance. They knew something had to take place in their own hearts to prepare for the king who is coming. And so they come to John out of conviction. And it says they were streaming from the cities. And an an old commentator, an Oxford scholar named Alfred Edersheim, said that he, he believes it was a Sabbath year, a sabbatical year. And even though the Jews often didn't keep that sabbatical year, those who were righteous did. And he said they were freed from their agricultural duties and their businesses. And so they made this pilgrimage out to the Jordan River. And in this context, Jesus makes his debut. And his debut is a lot like his birth. It's in a a quiet place, a borrowed stable where he's born. He's raised in obscurity in a small town. And now he's baptized out near the wilderness in the Jordan River. It even says he was from Nazareth in Galilee because Nazareth was so obscure, they had to name where it was from. It'd be like saying, well, he's he's from Harvey, in North Dakota, because nobody knows where that is unless we knew it was in North Dakota. And the news traveled, and from this obscure place, it, it traveled from synagogue to synagogue, from elder to elder, from Pharisee to Pharisee. It traveled all around the country, not at light speed like the news of Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift is traveling today, but it traveled, and it didn't take long for the whole country to know about John the Baptist and this baptism of Jesus. And at every stage of this, Jesus is entering in. He's taking on the radical neediness of a broken world. And so that's why the Gospel of John calls him Emmanuel, God with us. Not some imperious, untouchable, unapproachable superstar, but a servant, a profoundly seeable, touchable, humble person. And I know what you're asking. You're asking the question, why was Jesus baptized? If this is a baptism of repentance and Jesus is without sin, then why did he come to be baptized? And even John felt this tension. He, Jesus came to him and John said, hey, you should be baptizing me. I'm not the one who should baptize you. But let's, let's let Jesus answer in his own words. We find them in Matthew chapter 3, verse 15. Jesus said, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented, and John baptized him. Now, not, it, wasn't, it was not that Jesus wasn't righteous and that this baptism would make him so. This is not a transition from Jesus' humanity and then the Holy Spirit comes on him and he becomes this sort of hybridized, docetic appearing of God. No, he was always the God-man. This is not something adding to the nature of Jesus. No, what is happening here is Jesus is making a way for righteousness to come to me and to you. You see, his whole life journey, it says in the scripture, for God made him 
to be sin for us who knew no sin, that I might become the righteousness of God in him. A great exchange is going to take place, and Jesus is identifying with broken humanity. He's saying, I will tell the people how righteousness has been fulfilled from my birth to my walking, my obscurity in the the carpenter shop to, to my miracles and my teaching to the cross and ultimately to the resurrection. I will be showing people how we fulfill all righteousness. And so John has said in his gospel, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So let's drill down a little bit more so we understand what is being revealed in just these three verses here. You know, every, every preacher, when, he's, when you study deeply a passage of Scripture, you think, this has got to be the most important passage in the whole Bible. And, and so it expands and expands and expands. And, and so, you know, and there, later in the week, the Holy Spirit is saying, throw out 80% of this and, and just try to give them some nuggets. So here's the first one. Why was Jesus baptized? He was baptized for the world to see a God at work. Our God is the Lord of history. He's the Lord of a story. He's the Lord of geography. He's the Lord of genealogy. He's the Lord of the nations. And he will most certainly make the nations Subscribe to the plan that he has so that everything will redound to his glory and everything will arrive at the right place at the right time. And he's doing this now. He's saying to Israel, I've not forgotten you. I haven't forgotten you in all your rebellion. I haven't forgotten you in all your captivity. I haven't forgotten you in these years of revelational silence. And now I'm coming to show you the next act in the salvation history, which is the debut of my son, the son of God. He's like the prodigal's father who waited and waited and waited for the right time to run to his son and bring him home. And here God is breaking into their economy, breaking into their families. He's breaking into their religious history and he's making a brand new covenant for the children of Israel. And by the way, God is working today. We're all watching the news Hundreds and hundreds of Israelis have been killed. Hundreds and hundreds on the opposite end of that, of Palestinians. Uh, We're we're watching because end times prophecies all generate right there in that tiny nation of Israel. And we're watching, and it's very scary to us. And we need to recognize, yes, we need to pray. We need to pray for our own knowledge and wisdom. But we need to recognize and, and thank God that he is in control. Not in some blithe, carefree way. We care about what happens. But God is in control of the nations. And he's in control of what is happening now. If you want to know what's going to happen in a big picture, read Matthew 24 this week. And that will show you. Buckle up. uh, Because there are many things that are going to happen. I don't know when. But we know that they certainly will take place because God is at work and has not stopped working. When Jesus is baptized, this is the ratification of over 300 prophecies that said he was coming, that he'd be born of a virgin, that he'd be raised in Nazareth, that he would be of the tribe of Jesse, and and that he would be in the lineage of David. And here's this visible, physical, 
historical hope that is in debut here in the River Jordan. And then when this day was done, the Son of God, the man Jesus, sent as the Son of God, would be standing on the bank of the Jordan with water dripping off his hair and his beard, a real, touchable, visible Messiah, the Son of God. Years ago, there was a couple who attended Berean, and they were intrigued. They came more and more frequently, and, and we witnessed to them, and they heard messages. And, and one day, Michelle was propped up with her pillows in bed, getting ready to go to sleep, and she was reading the, the book of John, and her husband, Don, was, was uh, getting ready to go to bed. And all of a sudden, she sat up, and she said, Don, get in here. She said, Jesus is God. It's the first time she realized that. And, that, and they, they came to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And that's basically what's happening here in this baptism. He is God. The kingdom of God is at work. You are not forgotten. And this is not Braveheart. It's not Joan of Arc. It's not a Navy SEAL. It's not a conquering general. This is Jesus as the servant. As it says of him in Hebrews, quote, I have come to do your will, O God. God is drawing the world to himself. He's drawing the world in that day to himself, and he's saying, I want you to look at your heart. I want you to go deeper than the politics and the economics and the religious warfare of our day, and I want you to look at your heart. He's drawing them to a baptism of repentance. And ultimately, Jesus will finally declare to them the simplest thing in the world. He will say, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So the first reason that Jesus is baptized is to show the world that God is at work and he's still at work. The second reason Jesus was baptized is to awaken the religious to a savior. Think about that. To awaken the religious to a savior. C.S. Lewis was asked once, which of the world's great religions would bring the greatest happiness to its followers? And without hesitation, he said, while it lasts, the religion of worshiping oneself is the best. That's what religion is. Religion is self-reliance. It's performance. It's keeping stats on what a good girl you are. You're a good boy. You always return your library books on time. You take your kids to soccer. You, you, you give to different campaigns. You're, the Religion is keeping tabs on all the good things so that we can gain merit. So we can have a spreadsheet when we go before God and say, see all these good things I did. When Jesus comes, he's trying to awaken the religious. That they're not doing the things that really need to be done. They haven't really looked inside their hearts to see that there's a snake pit of greed and pride and anger and vengeance and lust that lies inside there that we can't cure on our own. The religious need a rescuer need a savior. 
And Jesus came to fulfill righteousness so that even the religious, and these were some of the most religious people ever in history, would see that they need a savior. Nicodemus was one of those. Maybe he was one of those who came and got baptized by John. And later he met Jesus at night and Jesus said, you must be born again. Something has to happen inside your spirit because you were born of Adam and you will die in your sin. But I've come to make a way and be the Lamb of God. This baptism fulfills all righteousness on our behalf. The late Tim Keller said this about the gospel. The gospel says you are simultaneously more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, yet more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. Why is that? Because all of us religious people need a Savior. Jesus came to declare that. His mission was not for himself. He came to save his people from their sin. He came to save the addicts and the rebels, the teacher's pets and the quarterbacks. He came to save the C students and the bullies. He came to save the religious and the skeptics and the zealots and the sellouts because he's bringing a new covenant of grace instead of law, a new covenant of light instead of shadow, a new covenant of permanence and finality instead of performance and repetition. He has come to be the final, perfect Lamb of God to be offered once for all for the sin of the world. So here's what it says in Hebrews 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Hebrews 4:15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus is coming as an in the flesh rescuer. There there are probably not many in this room of my generation, but uh, maybe you studied somewhere along in your sociology class, a classic book, at least it was classic when I was in school, is a book, it's a book called Black Like Me, written by a journalist named John Howard Griffin. And I'll let him put it in his own words. And by the way, the language that he uses here was, was not thought to be insensitive when he wrote it. He wrote this in 1959. He said, for years, the idea had haunted me. If a white man became a Negro in the deep South, what adjustments would he have to make? What is it like to experience discrimination based on skin color, something over which one has no control? This was in the deep South during the Jim Crow days, and a lot of segregation, separation, and discrimination was going on. How else except by becoming a Negro could a white man hope to learn the truth? Though we lived side by side throughout the South, communication between the two races had simply ceased to exist. So he did something radical. He, he took injections, he dyed his skin, he shaved his head, and took all kinds of supplements to darken himself so that he could pass as a black man in the South. 
He said, the only way I could see to bridge the gap between us was to become a Negro. I decided I would do this. I prepared to walk into a life that appeared suddenly mysteriously frightening. With my decision to become a Negro, I realized that I, a specialist in race issues, really knew nothing of the Negro's real problems. I must walk through a land hostile to my culture and hostile to my skin. And he felt the suffering. He felt the prejudice. Later, after several weeks of doing this, and he went back to his old identity, he was actually sought out and beat up and almost killed because of what he revealed to the world about what was happening. Sounds a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Jesus came to be so identified with us and people hated him because of what he showed in the human heart. Jesus came fully human as a man. The father sent the son to be the savior of the world. So here's some robust theology. This is good. These are good words to put in your next Scrabble game. I want to read you the creed, the Chalcedonian creed, which defines or tries to draw boundaries around who Jesus is. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one's consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. Truly God and truly man of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with us according to the manhood, in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all the ages of the Father, according to the Godhead, and in these latter days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. Now, this is not Scripture, but it's a distillation of hundreds of passages of Scripture trying to create boundaries around the the true nature of the Son of God and fight the heresies that were coming up in the early church. And John, the Gospel of John, simply says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Why was Jesus baptized? Thirdly, to inaugurate the new covenant with authority. To inaugurate means to begin, to institute, to roll it out, to reveal it. And this is what happens at the baptism of Jesus. His real three-year mission begins here. His, his dusty, homeless, exhausting, sorrowful, painful, miraculous, sacrificial, and ultimately victorious ministry of three years begins here in this debut. By the way, this is one of the clearest evidences of the Trinity. The Father affirms the Son, and the Son receives the Spirit They're all there. And this affirmation by the Spirit of God helps Jesus in his resoluteness to go all the way to the cross. One of the greatest passages of Scripture that defines who he is is Hebrews chapter 1, first three verses. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. If you want to sink into a worship passage you could spend every morning in for a week, Hebrews chapter 1, those first three verses, define and extol and exalt who Jesus really is. That he came to inaugurate a new covenant with authority. And that new covenant descends on him. The scripture says, the spirit of God that the heavens were torn like the rending of the veil at his crucifixion. The heavens were torn open and the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. Now let's be clear, the Holy Spirit is not a dove despite how many coffee cups you have and bookmarks you have with the dove on them, despite how many signs you've seen. The Holy Spirit is not a dove. Class, students, it's a simile. It's like a dove. So the way that it descended is what the scripture is saying. And a dove is, is, is pure, it's gentle, it's graceful, and it lands gently, not like an albatross. Have you seen nature movies on the albatross can fly for days, but they can't land. They do end over end when they land. They're just clumsy. This is like a dove. It's planned. It's not crashing. It's not violent. It comes upon him. And they witnessed this. This was not a vision. This is something they saw happening right there. The heavens split like the rending of a veil. This is witnessable, and this caused an awakening Because scripture was being fulfilled. Listen to Isaiah chapter 42. Because this is what the prophets predicted about the Messiah. Behold my servant whom I uphold. My chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And he will bring justice to the nations. And that justice primarily is justice between God and man when sin is paid for and justice is done. And who can forget Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you the heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. When Jesus is baptized, these prophecies and many others are inaugurated and put into place as Jesus does his ministry of grace. So we have a threefold witness. We have the forerunner predicted in prophecy. We have the voice of the Father speaking. And we have the manifestation of the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus and so we had have the advent of a new covenant, which is announced, the covenant of grace. And in that covenant of grace, the gospel of John writes in chapter 1, verse 12, it says, and as many as received him, as many as put their faith in him, as many of them as saw him and received him for who he is, to them he gave the authority the power, the right to become the children of God. The reason Jesus was baptized was to inaugurate this new covenant with authority. 
that in his name you can stand before the God of the universe and say, Lord, I come before you not on my own merit, not based on my own performance, not on my own self-reliance, but I come to you because I've put my faith in Jesus and he made a way for me. We can't leave this passage without talking just a bit about the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus was baptized in the Holy Spirit, and John said, he's going to bring that baptism to you. And that's not a particular feeling or a particular ritual where that happens. It's the power of the Holy Spirit working in the world. Let me just give you some ways that he may be working right here, right now. You may be here because the Holy Spirit, in some subtle way, has been drawing you to be here. Now, maybe you came because you want your kids to have some Bible education. Or maybe you came because you want to please someone else. Or you were invited by somebody else. But you're here under the Word of God. And you know, the the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to help us understand. So it's by the Holy Spirit that you may be convicted this morning of your sin. And drawn to God's mercy In grace, that's all the Holy Spirit's subtle working. By the Holy Spirit, you may hear the gospel and for the very first time recognize, that was for me. Don, Jesus is God. (laughs) And believe that, that's the Holy Spirit convincing your mind. By the Holy Spirit, you may be convinced of the truth and put your faith in Jesus Christ. By the Holy Spirit, you as a believer, by his power, can live the Jesus life and bear the fruit that only comes from the Holy Spirit and live that life for his glory in freedom, redeemed by him. By the Holy Spirit, you can walk in your new identity. How often do I need to hear the same words that Jesus heard at his baptism? When the Father said to him, you are my beloved son, In you, I am well pleased. How many times a day do you need to hear, you are my beloved daughter? You didn't earn your way into the kingdom. You don't have to perform for me. You don't have to add up your points and your status. You you, you don't have to do everything right. Yes, you have things you need to confess, but you are my daughter. You're my son. And... I'm well pleased with you. You don't have to live in the woodshed because you've sinned or made a mistake. Bring it to me. Come and confess your sin to me. Bring it for repentance and renewal. You are my beloved child. And in you, I am pleased. And not only pleased, I'm going to entrust you with an assignment for you to do on my behalf and for my glory. And you will find satisfaction in walking with me. All of this is inaugurated at Jesus' baptism. And when he comes out of the water, dripping wet as the Messiah, visible and touchable and knowable, he's a person who then fulfills the mission of God in the next three years. He dies on the cross for my sin and yours and is risen from the dead in the victory that proves he is the Son of God. If you don't know him today, we exist not only to introduce you to him,
but also for all of us to walk together in community, in the living church, to help one another walk with him and look something like him because the Spirit of God is upon us as well. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that every single person here will hear some prompting of the Holy Spirit, some confirmation of your word, some conviction that must be attended to, some comfort that needs to be received, some movement that we can do with joy. And Lord, we pray for the great hope you give us in a world of war and turmoil and chaos and ugliness. Send your word in beauty, in design, in invitation, so that we can enjoy you and bring you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And that does it for this episode of the Berean Podcast. All of our ministries at Berean are geared towards the mission of seeing lives transformed by the power of the gospel. If you would like to be connected with our church family or give to the mission of Berean, just jump online to our website at bereanmn.com. Thanks for listening today, and we pray that you are encouraged by today's episode. Be sure to like us on social media, and we'll see you here next time on the Berean Podcast.